drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello there, it's Drive-By Cinema Season 3, Episode 48. Woohoo! This is where the rubber meets the bros. Why did I make that joke? Who knows? No reason. I don't know. This is my co-host, Paul. I might get the joke by the end of the hour. Uh, this is my co-host, Richard. Hello. Howdy, oh. all. Welcome. Howdy. We're watching no. the movies, so you certainly don't have to. Last week, we were very... What's the word? We were very reserved. We didn't oh. venture into the subject that everyone else has been talking about, which is the... Exploding submarines. Imploding submarine, yeah. Imploding, sorry. And I think it is bad taste to make jokes, if only because one of them was the son of one of the passengers. Who was apparently... he the son of a billionaire, though? He was, okay, so he was very rich. Okay, he very briefly inherited a lot of money, very briefly. But he, I think, was frightened of going, but only went because it was Father's Day. And so he went with his dad, and that was a fateful decision, wasn't it? Mm. So, but over the last couple of weeks, when everyone has suddenly immediately become experts in deep-sea submarine <laughs> exploration, I have actually Perhaps learned... more expert than the company that designed this thing. Perhaps so. But I've learnt some interesting things I didn't know about, about submarines and some things that are a bit surprising. I confer some things I already knew, which is the carbon graphite isn't particularly strong in compression, is it? Sure. So yeah. why would you design it out of carbon fibre? No, and most other submarines that have done this kind of thing are made of a titanium sphere. Yeah, steel or titanium. Tita- but titanium is, I think, common. It's expensive, though, you see. He was doing it on the cheap, wasn't he? As a billionaire, yeah. But I'm not sure he was all that rich. I mean, he was. Uh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. But no, there were, there were a couple of interesting things. One is some surprising things about the way these kind of subs fail, the failure conditions. And I mean, basically, as we know, it's like instantaneous doom when it fails because the pressure down there is sort of 600 times or something what it is in the surface. Well, It's unimaginable pressure coming in at you from all sides it's milliseconds yeah exactly but also in submarines at depth when you get a failure and the water rushes in and stuff because the air is at atmospheric pressure yes this is an interesting point it immediately gets compressed so it will wind up being a a tiny bubble suppose they had a small leak the air would end up being a tiny bubble in the top of the sub because it would just be wildly compressed from what it is in the surface during that compression, it would heat up. Yeah, and explode. Well, nitrogen and oxygen do react. Some videos are a bit funny about how hot it would get. Like, and I don't think it would necessarily get that hot, because after all, the, there's not, the heat capacity of the air is not that much. So even if you heated it up a lot, it would quickly... You wouldn't heat up all the water and the people and all the stuff in it very quickly, or very much, necessarily, right? Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. But... Certainly, but I mean, would it heat know. up enough to explode? Would it heat up enough for the well, that- nitrogen and oxygen to react? They certainly react in combustion engines, don't they? That's why we have nitrous oxide emissions. Diesel engines work on yeah. compression, right? Yeah. It's the compression cycle of the cylinder of the piston that creates the nitrous oxide, diesel. Yeah. And I have heard that in military submarines, certainly the old World War II diesel ones, when the if water rushed in very quickly. The, the hydrocarbons in the air would ignite, you know. Whoa. Which is horrifying, of course. But I don't know. I mean, basically, the submarine would just have disintegrated instantaneously, so none of this heating really would have been material in any way, would it? But here's the other thing that I learned that I didn't know, which is this problem of air being compressible is... Obviously, it's quite important that your submarine is buoyant because if it's sinky... You run the risk of any any failure, you'll just sink yeah. and die on the bottom of the ocean. You want your submarine to always be floating, really, so yeah. that in any emergency you can just let it float to the top. But what do you use for your buoyancy? Without ballast. And this is this is another thing about the design of deep sea subs, is that what you do is you make them buoyant and then you put weights on them, you put ballast on them, and then you have systems so you can drop the ballast, ballast yeah. when you want to surface, right? Clever, smart designers design all these fail-safes 
So there are two fail-safes I've heard of, but I'm sure there are several multiple systems redundant. One is you have electromagnets holding ballast to the ship. Whoa. So if your power goes out, the electromagnets stop being energised and the ballast drops off. And then the other thing I've heard is you attach ballast to your sub on wires that corrode in seawater. So you know that in eight hours' time, all the ballast lines will corrode, weights will drop, and your sub will pop to the surface no matter what. See. Cool, eh? That's clever. I'm not sure these guys did anything of the same with the Titan. In the brief but, circumspe- circumspectory kind of glance I looked at, uh, you know, I didn't really have time for all this this week. But the other thing was when the water comes in, it compresses and ingresses into the body and makes the bones super dense or something because of the pressure, and therefore the bodies could not float to the surface if they remained. Wow. Yeah, I, I suppose no, that's true because there, there must be air pockets in... There are big air bones, pockets in bone, yeah. typically, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's mm. true, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to, you know, hit the true buzzer on that one. I don't think there's any bones left. I think it's just exactly. Be it would be smithereens anyway, wouldn't it? So. Grizzly. Anyway, so but apparently, you know, a nice way to go because you're just not aware of yourself going, are you? So. One of the deepest subs is called the Bathyscape Trieste. I think this was in the sixties. Mm. Look at pictures of it. In fact, you might want to Google this as we do this. If you look at pictures of the Bathyscape Trieste, it looks a bit like an airship, like a zeppelin. Yeah, it's got. It's got a big submarine. That's how I imagine subs anyway to be. Are you saying they're not like that? Often? But it's got uh, dangling underneath. It's got like a spherical gondola. All right. So the way that it works is that the bit at the bottom, the gondola, is a, a titanium or steel sphere. That's the only bit that people are in, and the rest of the submarine is filled with oil, paraffin kind of thing. Oh my god! Because it floats. It floats on water, but it's a liquid, so it's not compressible. So really, it's a giant flotation device. With the gondola underneath. With the, What's it called? The Bath Escape Trieste. Oh, no, I've never seen a submarine like that. Well, that's because it's for a very specialist purpose. It's for going to the deepest trenches and stuff. And I think it was the deepest sub prior to recent times. Where? The submarine that holds the record for going to the deepest point of all oceans, all five oceans, is yeah. called the Limiting Factor. And it's now owned by the guy who owns Valve Software, Gabe Newell. Although I don't think he, he, he got it built. It was built for someone else, another explorer. And the limiting factor, again, is like a titanium sphere. But they use a special kind of foam that won't crush as no. their flotation device, basically. Sort of a crush-proof foam. The limiting factor is an amazing submarine. It, doesn't, it looks very weird because its only job is to go up and down. But as I say, they did all five oceans. So, yeah, interesting learning all this physics, really. So what about the memes? I mean, I, th- I think some of the memes, like, okay, I was, you know, the memes that say, oh, okay, would you like to take a helicopter to the moon? And it's like what you call a gyrocopter kind of thing. But the kind of memes that take on board the poor design of this submarine, I don't think are offensive. He played fast and loose with the safety protocols. Fundamentally, I don't think you want to send people down to the depths. I don't see what the point is, because you're going to be spending hours in a cold, sweaty tube with apparently four other people. You're going to be looking through this tiny window. See nothing. It's a desert down there, isn't it? You can only see what they can illuminate with the lights. A blue desert, dark desert, I imagine. Here's what I would do. Get an ROV with a VR camera on the top of it. Have your person on the surface with a long wire, and they can control the ROV... And use the VR to look around so they think that they're really there. That would be really cool. They could control just, where they're going. Or just stay in a shallower water than a normal submarine and pop David Attenborough on the, on the, on the widescreen. Do you know what I mean? I certainly don't see the point of putting yourself in grave danger and going down there. I, I don't believe we should be sending David Attenborough, Paul. He's a national treasure. We don't want to... <laughs> anyway, really so I did, I did hop onto the comment section of some of the memes that were deemed to be offensive, talking about billionaires and death. And some of the people came back and said, well, I'm sorry, but I stand by what I said. Uh, this has had a week of column space, and yet there are 3,000 people dying of, I don't know, whatever, starvation in wherever. It's like, um, it's the billionaires I'm getting, I'm getting about, not the death of them kind of thing. So I don't know if it is offensive to say billionaires should know better. No, it seems fair game. It seems fair game. cruel. But cruel, yeah. It's time to talk about this week's movie after this music. 
Well, we've got some explaining to do because this is not the movie that we promised it's last not. week. No, no, it's not. Last we week gonna, we said we were going to no. go to the cinema and see Asteroid City. Take a rare foray into the real world. What's, what's it? Where's Anderson's Asteroid City? Yeah. But what happened, Paul? I was there. I was about to go to the cinema. You were? Amazing. I'm town. just so glad I managed to contact you in time. Something must have happened to you then, Paul. What was I was it? I was una- unable to find any cinema locally that was putting this show on. So for those reasons, I had to cancel our viewing. Paul, say it isn't so. Blackpool, the metropolitan, cosmopolitan <laughs> tourist destination. Yeah, yeah. I, I, who would have thought it? But unfortunately, Blackpool Cinema has just closed down for the final time. I guess we are like a week or two out from the launch of Asteroid City. It's a bit of an art movie. If I, I think. I think instead there's going to be a, a bingo hall complex. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, replacing the cinema. Wow. I have to say, every time I've been to watch our occasional sort of live viewings, it has been thoroughly empty. So that's because, just like our podcast did when we started, everyone's watching all these movies at home, Paul. Yes. Yeah. And it's only a couple of weeks now. It seems it only seems like a couple of months until you can see. Things in the cinema on streaming. Is it that quick these days? I mean, life comes at you fast, doesn't it? So, I have to plan ahead for Oppenheimer when it arrives, because that's something we need to see. You should see it here in Manchester with me, because it's one of the few like proper IMAX screens that's going to do the IMAX screening of Oppenheimer on the IMAX screen, apparently. You, IMAX is just more screen. You who normally watch everything on your phone, for you, IMAX is a pointless waste of money. <laughs> I wonder if Richard has, like, like prisons have a scorecard above their bed. Yeah. I wonder if he said, oh, okay. Have I hit the, hit the trigger points to <laughs> insist that Paul watches the movie in his car? Triggered! Insist, <laughs> insist Paul watches the movie on his phone. I don't know what the other insistence is, but there's another one too. So, instead of Asteroid City, what did we watch? So instead of that, we watched Rubber. Rubber. Now, I suggested it to you last week. You ummed and ahed. You liked the idea. I did like the idea, yes. Here we are. We've seen it now. From 2010. Yeah. Directed by... Some French bloke. Directed by (laughs) Anton Dupieux. I suppose you might pronounce it. Who is famous for... Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're really putting me... On the spot there, Richard. I've got no idea what's he He doesn't know. Okay. We'll come back to that later. It's quite exciting. Okay. Is it? Okay. I think you'll be charmed by it. Yeah. If you don't know it, and I spring it on you, you might be pleasantly surprised. Okay, listen. What happens in this film, Paul? How does it open? Opening sequence. Quite arresting, isn't it? Well, fuck. I mean, it's a strange opening. It's, it's an attention and attention-grabbing opening. We've got just a bunch of people hanging out in the desert, haven't we? First, we see a load of dining chairs. A load of dining chairs arrayed on a dirt track. Yeah. And the car, like a Cadillac or something, a classic American land yacht, comes up the road, cleverly hitting every single chair, even though they've been arrayed haphazardly, hitting every single chair on the track. I couldn't help but notice how unsuited that car was for desert tracks. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's got a lot of body roll going on, no question. But then, of course, we find this era isn't the present day era or 2010 era, is it at all? Well, it can't be. No one's got a mobile phone, have they? No. I mean, we're stuck in the 80s, very much. Before the 80s became a retro delight that it is fashionable. Yeah. 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 A group of people watching this car approach out from which. We don't see the people yet. Oh. We just see a man standing there yes. with armfuls of many binoculars. That's right. A man so. in a, a, a shirt and tie. Who, I guess we're going to have to give him a name. I don't know what his name is. Shirt and tie guy, I guess. Yeah. Binoculars guy. The car stops, and out of the, what I'm going to call the trunk of the car, or for British listeners, the boot, gets a a guy dressed as a cop. A sheriff. Quite right. Do we see the crowd now? No, we don't. We don't see the crowd until he's finished his little speech. Oh, all right. To the camera. Okay. He gives but it not before he gets a glass of water. Gets a glass of water from the driver of the of the caddy. Yeah. And then he gives a speech in which he talks about No reason. He talks about the yeah, no reason. He talks about the what arbitrariness of some 
decisions or choices made in Hollywood movies. Here we go. Why was E.T. Brown? No reason. No reason. Why did Oliver Stone decide to have J.K. assassinated by a random stranger? No reason. No reason. In Love Story, why did they fall in love? Why did they fall in love? No reason. No reason. In Chainsaw Massacre, why do they not wash their hands or do other everyday activities? No No reason. reason. And in Roman Polanski's Pianist, why does such a successful and uh, pianist have to hide around like a bum? No reason. Because he was a Jew and he was in Nazi Germany. Okay, so you've hit the first one. There is maybe a reason for that. (laughs) Uh, JFK is roughly based upon reality. So the reason that he had that in the movie was because it was quasi-historical. Quasi-historical. And then then don't the crowd protest about this? And he goes on to explain about life itself. I don't think the crowd protests. Oh, okay. Well, he says, think about life. Uh, Am I right or no? Why do some people love and some people hate sausages? No reason. No reason. Why isn't air visible? No reason. No reason. <laughs> and why are we always thinking? No reason. And I have to take issue with one, two, or three of those, really. Yeah. I mean, there is a reason why air is invisible. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't absorb or reflect light in the... Invisible light. In the, in the visible light set of frequencies, does it? I mean... I mean, it's better to say that there's a reason why our eyes see yeah. in the wavelengths of light that aren't absorbed by the air. Precisely, yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, there is a reason why we don't see the wavelengths of light that are reflected by it, correct? Because <laughs> otherwise we won't be able to see the things other than the light, other than the air. But let's give, him, let's give him all of these points, because what he wants to say is that this whole movie is an homage to the no reason, yes. which he thinks is the most powerful element of style. I see. And now the audience, in the film the audience, is revealed behind a little velvet rope in the middle of the desert. And they've all been given binoculars by shirt and tie guy. But no chairs. And Well, no chairs because they've all been destroyed. <laughs> and they're asked to turn around and enjoy. And they're like, where do we look? And they, they do turn around. And one of, one of them is a little kid who looks through the binoculars. Does he manage to hold on the action first? I think he does, doesn't he? Yeah, but he says it's already boring. Oh. And someone says, don't, don't be negative, it'll pick up. And then the titles roll as we watch a bunch of refuse that has been fly-tipped, apparently, in the desert somewhere. <laughs> and at the end of the titles, after we've seen everybody's names, we see a tyre half-buried in the dirt. Now, and I guess this... Wait a minute, this is something I really want to talk about. It just so happens... I've been looking into this about two weeks previous to this movie. What? Tyres will always rise to the surface. That's why they're always like half up. Even if you bury 8 feet, 12 feet, 14 feet, 16 feet, 18 feet, 22 feet underground, after years and years and years, that tyre will rise to the surface. What what research have you been doing, Paul? Right, okay. So uh, tyres decompose and produce hydrogen gas. Uh, Hydrogen okay. gas collects in pockets in the tyre, and therefore right. it's, how do you express this? It's overall density. Buoyant. Uh, makes yeah. it buoyant in the floaty surface we call powder that is, you know, we, uh, makes up the ground. And so it slowly but surely floats up to the surface. And archaeologists have discovered this, have they? When no, I think it's on physics.org, so I'm 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 inclined to sort of go with it. But, but I mean, how far down can tires be? That's have a been really buried? good research question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm I, I'm assuming there's a limit here of a few umpty feet, isn't it? I mean, no more than twenty or thirty feet. They're they're not going to rise through. I guess is it soil or sand or clay? I think we're talking here about dry desert soil, aren't we? I love the idea that in 500 years' time, time team are looking... They're looking at all these cars with no tyres on, going, but how did they run on rails? How could they possibly have worked? They really skew their carbon data, isn't it, if all the tyres are in the wrong set of entry layers? So. There we go. 
Yeah. We see this tyre, though, twitching, starting to move, starting to wriggle its way out of its partially buried state, don't we? And it wobbles and wobbles backwards and forwards and is seemingly learning to tyre walk or tyre roll. It, it stands upright, it gets up, it rolls a bit, it falls over, it rolls a bit further, it falls over. Weirdly, the week before, this is the other thing I came across, is rolling bicycles down a hill and they don't yeah, fall they over. Up. No, that's right, they're self balancing. everybody says, oh, gyroscopic effect of the wheels. No, not true. It's not big enough, no. Not no, true. Not. It, is, it is significant, but it's tiny, particularly when you put a body of man on top of it. So, and it, like at the Garden Fate of some swimming club I was in, like, well, as a child, one of the cultures, he was actually an engineer at British Aerospace, and he designed a bicycle that steered the opposite way to which you turned it. And it is, of course, impossible to balance. Um, it's the steering, exactly. It's the steering. It's the steering. As the bike starts to tilt one way or the other. The steering turns that way. The steering turns and it compensates. Yeah. yeah. And I felt, well, I, I wasn't sure if a tyre would do the same thing. This is what really struck me at this point. But we need to go back to this chap, Paul. Yeah. Why had he built such a bike? <laughs> oh, I mean, the thing was, you know, there were throw sponges at people in stocks kind of thing. There was, you know, the loop uh, around. It was a fairground. It was, right. you know, parity, money-raising aspects of the club. Uh, to buy a sewing machine, yeah. I think, or something like that. And uh, men, drunken dads on that kind of bike, much hilarity ensued, you know. So. But you can learn to ride those bikes. I don't know if you can. He was pretty sure He was pretty sure that you couldn't. No, I've seen people do it. I've seen, and it's not easy, and it's extremely counterintuitive. Because the point but, is about an old bike is the turn and the fall, and then yeah. turning, turning the... You actually turn into the fall, don't you? Yeah, that's what creates the rebalance. Whereas here, that's right. You have yeah. to turn it the other way, and, and therefore you counter you're counteracting the the natural effect that would balance the bike up. I think. I think it's exceptional. nonetheless. I've seen, oh, um, people can. I mean, people can ride unicycles, Paul. So yeah, they can. I mean, you could obviously do it on a. They bike, can do it on a tyro. They can ride. They can ride unicycles, <laughs> three abreast. Too high while juggling. Whilst juggling on, on a rope, yeah. You're right. There is no limit to the beauty and, and the human potentiality. <laughs> but this is about... Crazy. You're quite right that you have described the pinnacle of human beauty. <laughs> so, <laughs> particularly when done in sort of uh, sequin lycra. Look, I mean... <laughs> and, and with like a one-man man thing, so they make... And maybe an elephant <laughs> trumpeting and possibly shitting underneath it, you know, on, on the circus foot. Beautiful, just a lovely image. But <laughs> but we're talking here about the potentiality of tyre, not of human, aren't we? We are. What does it come across tire, first? Does it come across a little scorpion? A plastic, bottle. Oh, a plastic bottle. Plastic bottle. It encounters a bottle lying on its side. It tries to roll over. It seems to enjoy. You, you have to. You can't help but anthropomorphise this tyre, mm. can you? It actually seems to like running into the bottle, and then it likes rolling over it and crushing the bottle. There's all kinds of dark that. triangle psychology going on. With this poor little. Adolescent tyre. That is true, because it next encounters a scorpion. Oh. It wastes very little time in running straight <laughs> over. Delighting itself in crushing it. I'm not sure. I mean, it must... It's not just its tyre weight. It's actually... It has some sort of ability to internally change its energy to force itself down on the scorpion. Because they're, they're hardy little beings, aren't they? Next we see a glass beer bottle. Yes. Which is, of course, quite unyielding to the tyre, trying to roll over yeah. it. So it goes over the bottle, jumps over it, as it were, and it turns around and looks at this bottle. Well, it doesn't have eyes, obviously, but it, it regards this bottle, and it starts to tremble. Yes. It shakes and trembles. <laughs> this builds up until, suddenly, the bottle breaks. Yeah, cut to crowd, oh, and they have an argument about whether it's... Whether it's telepathy or psychokinesis. Psychokinesis. They'd settle on psychokinesis, which I think is true. And the two teenage girls in the crowd say, can you just shut up and let us watch the movie? <laughs> There's a guy in the crowd with a camcorder. Yeah. And he's, he gets told, stop filming, it's pirate. This is funny. Do that. We see the tire mentally blowing up a tin can. Yes. So it's like practicing its mental blowing stuff up ability. And then night falls and the tire finds a little tree, lies down under it, and goes to sleep. As does the whole audience, by the way. They do, don't they? They're woken up by the binocular guy, shirt and tie guy, in the morning. I think, possibly, he might go around stealing money from their pockets while they're asleep. Is this the morning when he delivers a turkey, or is that the morning afterwards? 
That's later. That's later. Oh, okay. That's later. He wakes them up so that they can watch the tire wake up. And the tire wakes up and goes to a dirty puddle where it sort of dips its tire in. Yeah. The puddle and sort of seems to be drinking, doesn't it? I see. And then it looks up and it sees a rabbit, a desert rabbit. And of course, it quivers in the way that it does and blows the rabbit up. <laughs> and then we, we then get some easy listening music as the tyre rolls on and it comes to a road and rolls down the road. Yeah, I, I have to say, its rolling speed was quite disappointing. Yeah, it's not quick. It's steady, though, Paul. Give it its due. What was the little hobo called? The little, little dog? The littlest hobo. The littlest hobo. He, he, he kind of trotted merrily down the road, didn't he? This tyre is, is... It's a more curmudgeonly and sort of sluggish speed, isn't it? It sees a woman in a topless... VW Golf, I think. Right. It seems to want to catch up with this vehicle and this woman. Yeah. It uses its powers as it the car is passing, and the VW conks out, doesn't it? And she, she has to stop a little way further down the road, pulls over, because the car stopped. The tyre is approaching with who knows what intention, mm-hmm. and as it's doing so, what happens? Oh, fuck. I don't know. <laughs> What happens? (laughs) What happens is a pickup truck barrels down the road and hits the tyre. Oh, right. Knocks it clean out of the road on its side. The woman in the VW Golf, she can start her car again and she sets off and drives away. That's right, she escapes. But then Robert, the tyre, turns his attention to Robert? Yeah, Robert. How do you know it's called Robert? It's called Robert, the tyre. How do you know its name? It's not said its name. It was in my note list. Robert. It's in the credits at the end. Is it? Yeah, be You're quite right. It is called Robert. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Robert the Tide turns his attention to the uh, pickup drive. Pickup truck driver and kills him, doesn't he? Yeah, because the pickup truck driver stopped at a gas station further down the road. That's right. Yeah. On the way, it kills a crow. The tire kills a crow. Yeah, and, and leaves it dead in the road to dry and blister in the sun. And at the gas station, it starts. He's getting into his into his truck, isn't he? Tire comes up, regards him through the truck window, quivers, and the guy's head explodes <laughs> spectacularly. <laughs> the tire moves on down the road, and it arrives at a motel that the woman has stayed. That's right, taken taken leave of her journey to to stay at. In fact, she's gone into one of the motel rooms. She's left the door open very unwisely while she takes a shower. Yeah. And the audience are very pleased by this as well because they're, they're seeing a naked woman taking a shower too. They're debating, you know, is the tie going to get his way because she, she's got a nice rack, etc., a couple of nice peaches, blah, 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 blah. And everybody's joining in, aren't they? Apart from the two girls, like, can you just be quiet? We want to watch the movie. They're getting hungry, though, aren't they? Because they've been there two overnight. Days. Yeah. Apparently, they haven't had any food yet. The boy finds the rabbit sort of carcass but one of them points out that it's a fake carcass. It's not real rabbit, so they can't eat it. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Cut to now. I see. The interior of a motel room where shirt and tie guy is in the hotel room. He's on the phone to his boss, it would seem, explaining something or other. And we turn around and we see that he's got a turkey in the motel room with him. Yeah. A live turkey. A live turkey. Staring at him. He's just getting ready. And he opens his attaché case, and there's a load of kind of butcher's tools and knives in it. That's right. So we now cut back to the audience. Shirt and tie guy arrives. He's carrying like a sack. And he takes (laughs) out of the sack a turkey carcass. (laughs) Nicely roasted by the looks of it. And he tosses it to them. And there's a scene of... Crazy, frenzy, yeah. Debauched <laughs> hedonism as all of the ravenous audience. Except the guy in the wheelchair, the veteran in the wheelchair. Does it, that's right. There's a Vietnam vet in the wheelchair. I presume it's, well, it could be a vet from any of the previous wars, couldn't he? But he's not partaking of the turkey. In fact, he tells them it's poisoned. It's a trap. Turkey's a trap. But they don't listen. They're too hungry. Right. In the meantime, has the maid at the motel been killed by the tire? No. What she does first 
is she oh. finds that the tire has got itself a room in the motel. Yeah. And is having a shower. Now, she's disgusted that there's a dirty tire in the hotel shower. So she picks it up and chucks it outside. There's also skid is... marks on the bed. There are, <laughs> there are skid marks on the bed, yes. As there would be, yeah. Now, a kid, a young boy, sees a tyre enter one of the rooms. This kid, I think, is the son of the motel owner. And he immediately goes and sends, he immediately goes and tells his dad that there is a tyre mucking around in the motel. His dad rightly doesn't believe him and sends him on an errand to get pizza. Yeah. By the time he gets back, the maid is dead. She's lying on the ground with her head blown up. Not before he's gone past the dead crow on the road, is that right? That's right, yeah. He sees the the carcass of the dead crow and he picks bits up and puts it on his dad's pizza. Now, I was thinking, what's this kid look like? It's 2010. He's a Justin Bieber lookalike, isn't he? I don't think it was Justin Bieber, Paul. Oh. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Oh. Well, he looks what... He looks rather like Justin Bieber. It's, it's that ep- epochal 2010 sort of look, isn't it? I think he's called Zach, but I think he might be played by Remy Thorne. But don't quote me on that. Anyhow. So the maid is dead. The tyre is now watching the woman from the Gulf, who has finished a shower and is now outside by the pool, having had a swim. And the tyre is watching her salaciously, I guess, is the word? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Murderously. It's hard to know really what's going on in the tyre's inner tube, isn't it's, it? It's really... Yeah, the, although we can anthropomorphise the tyre to a degree, we can't really know the inner thoughts of the tyre, <laughs> can we? When he starts quaking or wobbling, I think we know he's going to commit psycho psychokinetic murder, isn't he? He has a tell, yes, that's right. It's part of his MO. Now, the audience, meanwhile, they're all getting terrible stomach cramps because the turkey was indeed poisoned, as we learn. Meanwhile, kid has found the dead maid, decapitated. Cops arrive. The kid shows them the tyre, which is now in the pool, (laughs) having jumped in. Perhaps to emulate the woman? Uh, yeah, but it's not know. moving. And the cops are having a hard time believing this, aren't they? The tyre has killed the woman. They say, I think the cop says it's not moving. And the kid says, maybe it drowned. <laughs> <laughs> All the audience are now dead, apart from the, Viet- the Vietnam vet sitting in yeah. his wheelchair, who didn't eat the turkey, as we said. Now, an alarm goes off, indicating that the poison has worked. And the chief of police... You heard an alarm? I didn't hear an alarm. Oh, I thought that was the alarm was there, because straight afterwards he turns to the, to the like, cameo police officer and says, OK, show's over, go home, it's all finished. Yeah, he says he the audience twice. is dead. Nobody, says, nobody's watching, we can stop now. We can go. But one of his cops, Denise... She she's like, what are you talking about, Sheriff? <laughs> he's, he's explaining. Like, oh, this to is her. real. It's really? Just... Yeah. Stop. They don't seem to know what he's talking about. He tells one of the cops to pull out their gun and yeah. point it at him and shoot. And reluctantly, <laughs> after a lot of encouragement, one of them does. They shoot him. Blood comes out of his chest. That squib has gone off, I suppose, in Hollywood parlance. But he's standing there, going, "Look." It's fine, it's not real, it didn't hurt. Chad is still fine, yeah. yeah. So somebody else shoots him to check, and he's fine. Chad, he's Sheriff Chad, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, Sir, Sheriff Chad, yeah. But then the the shirt and tie guy with the binoculars turns up, and he says that one spectator is still watching, so they'll have to carry on. <laughs> so the sheriff is mortified because he's just tr- sort of blown the cover of the whole thing. So he turns around to his crew and says, listen, ignore everything I've just said. (laughs) He goes to interview the motel owner. Just as he's doing that, the tyre, which they'd fished out of the pool, turns around and explodes the motel owner's head whilst he's talking to the sheriff. Yeah, and there you go. So I think it's fairly obvious that the tyre is guilty. The sheriff pulls a piece of paper out of his breast pocket. He looks at it and he says... 
It's like it's his script, I think. And he says, oh, oh God, the kid was right. The killer is a tyre. <laughs> then he puts a piece of paper away. The tyre's rolled away already, though. It's actually round one of the side of the motel, looking in a mirror that's leaning up against the <laughs> building. It's looking at itself, as if maybe the first time it's seeing that it's a tyre. Oh, or what it's done. I thought it was- we also get we also get a montage. Yeah, this is the what the tire has done montage, which includes all the events that we've seen. It also includes, I think, a scene of a wheel rolling, which I presume is it on a car. And I think it might be on a golf, which may be why it was chasing the golf. Maybe ah, maybe it's possible. I'm reading too much into this film. No, I don't think you are. <laughs> it's early childhood memories, kind of thing. The kid. Like the owner's son is sitting near to this mirror looking at the tire and he asks the tire about killing Martina but the tire doesn't answer I suppose that's understandable rolls away and he chucks his drink can his soda can at it we cut now to the sheriff removing a tire from his Cadillac from his big car for some reason he's removed the tire so he can show the other cops what the killer looks like, <laughs> which is a tyre. <laughs> is it a good year? We think it's probably non-generic. Sorry, we think it's probably non-branded generic. It's non-branded, yeah. <laughs> is it black? And that kind of stuff. So. Now, the shirt and tie guy, now desperate to finish the job he'd started, brings a complete dining table up to the place where the audience are to the vet in the wheelchair. And it's got loads of food on it. It's got a couple of clunches covering a delicious meal, which he reveals, but the vet's not interested in eating. And after a brief exchange, Shirt and Tie Guy sits down and glumly starts eating the food himself as he gives like an autobiographical story. Yeah, why does he do that? I don't know. His story is about how he went into the woods one day with his brother and winds up killing his brother with a rock. (laughs) (laughs) But surely he must know the food's poisoned. Yeah, he's kind of self-destructive, isn't he? I guess. Well, he does die a painful death at the feet of the vet in the wheelchair, clutching his stomach in terrible agony. The tyre, meanwhile, sees black smoke rising over what I'm going to call a tyre pyre. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you I, I There's I some sort of tyre pogrom going on, isn't there? It's a junkyard and they're chucking a load of tyres on the pile of Oh, I thought it was burn. a response to the tyre murders They rounded up all the tyres and were just getting rid of them I think it's conventional junkyard fire Oh, oh, it's just a junkyard fire, okay But it has a deep impact on the tyre, doesn't it? Clearly <laughs> Caption Three days later Sorry, I should do it in French you know, Three days later it's hard to remember this is a French movie, isn't it, really? Because it's all set in America, in the California I don't know. In desert, some ways, Paul, it's very easy to remember this is a French movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in some ways. But not in terms of scenery or, or, or actors. Scenery, actors. I think the lady in the golf might be French. I She's see. certainly got a European accent, doesn't she? Anyway, we're looking around now a town, a small town, and we're seeing exploded heads or decapitated bodies everywhere with exploded heads around them. Cops are investigating the crime scenes, and there are many. And two of the cops are outside a house, and looking through the window gingerly, they see the tyre sitting on on an armchair watching NASCAR, which I guess is like like porn for tyres? I don't don't know. (laughs) Cut to, this is quite, I like this bit, this is nicely philosophical, I like this bit. The sheriff is with some of his team, and two of them, the sheriff and another cop, are playing chess on the bonnet, sorry, on the hood of one of the cars. And he makes a move, like a stupid move that you can't do in chess. And his, the, the cop playing with him says, you can't do that. You can, but it's against the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. <laughs> So they're here to stake out the tyre, yeah? That's right. And so they've got, they've got a lure. Plan, don't they? Yeah. What's the lure, Paul? The lure is to make him furious. How? Now, I've been watching Return of the Saint recently. Oh, with uh, Ian Ogilvy? With Ian Ogilvy. And he often uses the lure of making his 
ex, it's also an ex-colleague who's got a grudge kind of thing against the world, making them angry and making them jump out from behind their camouflaged hiding place by provoking them with with psychologically devious prompts, which I guess is in the in the in the, uh, the sheriff's mind here. But what we get is a comedy of ineptitude and and unconvincing lure, isn't it, really? So they've got a mannequin, a female mannequin, dressed up stylishly like the driver of the Golf. And booby-trapped. They've got a bomb on it. Yeah, that's also true. And they've got a speaker so that they can make her speak through the mannequin from a safe distance out of the blast radius. The idea is to bring the tyre in close proximity and get him so close and then anger him so that he explodes the mannequin and himself. She entices it to approach by saying things about it being a dirty tyre or something. (laughs) But, I mean, the script is particularly bad, isn't it? Exactly. She doesn't like the writing. She she kind of quits, you know, saying, this is crap, who wrote this? And the sheriff says, doesn't matter. Clearly he wrote it. He takes over for a bit, but it, that's obviously not working because his voice is not the same. So she he says, oh, just again. improvise, improvise. At this point, the audience member, the vet, turns up, knocks on the door of the van that they're secreted in, and he says that he, he doesn't understand this whole dummy bit. It doesn't make any sense. You know, why, how, is it, how is it going to entice it? Why would the tyre be enticed by this mannequin? He's suggesting just blow it up, send them, get a rocket launcher or something. I think the sheriff's a bit annoyed with him, or one of the cops says, we wouldn't even be here if you'd eaten a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> the woman is insulting the tyre. You're nothing but a rubber shit. At this point, the tyre is angry enough. Angry, yeah. She's worked in magic, yeah. She has. It quivers, does its thing, blows the head of the mannequin up, but it, it doesn't affect the explosives. They don't trigger. So the tire just goes back in, into the house, back inside. At which point, the sheriff loses his patience. He picks up a shotgun, walks inside. Off screen, unseen to Huzz, you hear a shotgun blast. He walks out with the tire shotgun cadaver. riddled carcass of a tire. He chucks it at the, the vet who was watching from his wheelchair. And that's it. In a you see gesture, sort of yeah. yeah. But then, and then we get the new one, don't we? It's a false end, isn't it? Because then, emerging from the home is... (laughs) Tricycle. (laughs) (laughs) A tricycle. Kid's tricycle. Beautifully designed, a single single tube for the frame. And the vet turns around and says, "Uh uh-oh, you know, it's not the end. And it moves towards him. And he's trying to say, look, I'm not a character in this. I'm, I'm an audience. I'm just watching. But he doesn't listen. It moves to him. And it blows up and completely obliterates... The vet and his wheelchair, isn't it? Wouldn't that be preferable? Because, I mean, the orders seem to have died in real life, whereas the actors don't die in actor life. Or do they? I don't know. That's a very deep question, Paul. <laughs> what level of reality do you want to die in in this film? I don't know. And that's do it, really. We're all in virtual heaven. And then we see the trike moving its way down the road. It passes the girl on the golf who's just been dropped off by the sheriff back to her car. It goes down the road. And as it goes down... Tires that have been left discarded on the road <laughs> start twitching and standing up. They start rolling after the trike. Totally, and yeah. the trike goes down the road, it keeps on going, and eventually we see it arrive at its destination, it seemingly its destination. And we, we look up and we see where's it arrived, Paul? Oh, I don't know. Did you not watch the end bit? <laughs> and you, you already t- turned off well, at this point. Like Hollywood, you know? It, yes, on a road overlooking the Hollywood sign. They've arrived. An uprising of anti-heroic outsiders, I guess. <laughs> Fabulous. During the credits, there's some weird thing where we see Chad repeating the opening scene, but actually he's not talking to anybody. It's his opening all. monologue, yeah, but we're watching from the side this time, from a different angle, and we can see the shirt and tie guys there watching him and actually making eye movements like he thinks he's crazy. And toward the end, it cuts to where the audience are supposed to be behind the velvet rope, and we see that there's nobody there. <laughs> What's the implication of that then, Paul? <laughs> I don't know. I guess we're going to find out in the next 15 minutes. The implication, surely, is He's crazy. We, we are the audience he was addressing. Yeah, we've start. eaten a turkey. <laughs> 
We've eaten a turkey. <laughs> I mean, surely turkey is talking about turkey movies, isn't it? Surely, yeah. Okay. So very French. It's French because it's supposedly postmodern. Is this a postmodern film, Paul? Question. It's silly. I don't think that's postmodern. It has a lot of the hallmarks of a postmodern film. It's incredibly self-referential. It's breaking the yeah. fourth wall in weird ways. But it's, it's also very, very it's also very giddy, isn't it? It's completely genre savvy. It's eschewing a lot of the normal conventions of film. Like it's not it's not even trying to justify why this tire is doing its murderous rage, is it? And it's art about art rather than art about life. So I guess yeah, it is in that sense postmodern. But it's not postmodern in the sense that it actually seems to be it actually seems to be a thing about Hollywood, right? Yeah. So the, the shirt and tie guy giving the audience the turkey and poisoning them and actually killing himself as well along with it. I think that's like the studios. He's a studio yeah, exec. Yeah, he's a studio exec, yeah. Obviously, the audience is the audience. That's yeah. ours depicted. I think the idea is that... It's talking about the movie experience. You know, these shitty chairs that are uncomfortable. You might as well not sit on them. <laughs> Yeah. Food you have to sort of beg to get at the concession stall and it's just poisonous anyway. Or is that movie food or actual food? I don't know about that analogous level. And, and also the audience is seeing the same kind of thing again and again. Mm-hmm. And they have their criticisms, but they're still there watching. And in a sense, sure, they are very yeah. much... The audience are part they're of inculcated. the They are. They're yeah. inculcated yeah. in the machine of deception that is feeding bland, mindless turkeys as food for thought, I think is what he's trying to say, in short. So all of this metaphor and message and subtext is, I think, profoundly non-postmodern. I think a strict postmodern film wouldn't would fail. permit itself to... Yeah. It, it wouldn't would, deliver the message to you in that way. It wouldn't have authorial voice. It would only have narrative yeah. voices and different conflicting narrative voices, which does this doesn't have. We've got a French director and writer doing a very French postmodernism bit, but also not very postmodern, because I think, my understanding is, he'd done a movie before this that was a flop. And I Ah. think he was a bit salty, perhaps, about the Hollywood machine spitting him out. Yeah. Question, who is this guy? (laughs) Who is the director? I don't know. Quentin Dupuis. You're about to tell us, hopefully. What did he do before? I'm intrigued now. That he's all In 1999, about. just before the turn of the millennium. He was doughy-eyed about the whole Hollywood fame that he was about to experience. And he released what? He became a sort of a sensation. He was a viral sensation before viral things happened. Whoa. He was the guy behind Flat Eric and Dr. Oh, no, Mr. Wazzo. Flat Beat. Flat Eric and Dr. Wazzo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, okay. I should be nodding, but I'm not. Yeah, I was going to say, this has completely failed. You were unaware of the cultural phenomena of Flat Eric. Eric. I remember the orange guy, but that was when YouTube started. You're talking (laughs) pre-YouTube. No, I I think that is the guy. Listen, I'll I'll send you the video. We can watch it together, because it's cool. Mr. Oizo. Mr. Oizo. Yeah, I've got it here. It's got 54 million views on YouTube. Wow. 54 million views. Wow. I've seen this, but he's dialing it up. You just say 1999. It is 1999. He's signing some papers. He's eating some carrots. They're hot dogs, Paul, clearly. Frankfurters. He's dialing up the tunes again. When he uses his computer keyboard, he's not connected to a monitor. Okay. Okay. Then he gets a full Levi's commercial. That's right. He became a Which sensation. He came later. He became a complete sensation. Whoa. So I'm shocked that you've not properly heard of him. I have seen him before, but I think in a, in a commercial. But I've not actually seen his original... I don't know what kind of music that would be. Dub House? Trip House? It's Flat Beat. Distort House? It's, it's, off. It, it's Flat House, Paul. So oh, what is it about... Flat Eric that makes him so appealing. I don't know. I think it's epochal. I don't think it'll go viral these days. Because so much has followed it that's similar, but kind of a bit more. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he's a bit like Kermit the Frog. He's a bit he like is. Roland Rat. And he's doing something youthful and, I guess, trendy. Which you wouldn't expect a stuffed toy to do. <laughs> There's that juxtaposition of a, of a stuffed toy being kind of like trendy. 
a lot of house music did this, did it later. Like, there's, uh, I don't know which one it is, where they've got a banging house track and they're, they're dressed out in their chains and whatnot and their tracksuits and they're going down the road in a mobility vehicle really slowly kind of thing. So it's that kind of house weirdness, isn't it? Huh. That expresses open-mindedness and, like, isn't the world bendy and wobbly and weird kind of thing. So I think very much of its era... Do you not have any questions about Flat Eric? Do you not want to know more no. about him? No. Well, I want to know how he's related to the saltiness that kind of oh. 2010 that made the I movie. I presume after his success with Flat Eric... He went to Hollywood. He went and did a film. Now, I don't know what film it was that he did in that period, but right. I think it didn't do well. That, that was what I'd read. A couple of other films by Quentin. His most recent one is called Smoking Causes coughing and it's like a a superhero avengers style group who are all kind of like nicotine style they use tobacco to fight crime in some way it looks a bit french quite french so i think his more recent stuff has all been back in his native french habitat yes (laughs) i am tempted to put more of his films on our list but i don't know let's perhaps talk about this movie and score it, maybe? I don't know, unless okay. you want to, unless okay. you want to yeah, explore no. it a bit more. I think we've explored as much as we can do. There isn't that much to it, I don't think. I mean, it's billed Although as... Although Dallas like, would be corrected when I say that. But. It's billed as a horror comedy, isn't it, Rubber? Yeah. I found it quite funny. I didn't find it particularly horror-y. It's so slightly... Was it drôle? I, I, maybe it was drôle, but I'm not sure it was funny or ha-ha, laugh out loud at any point. I liked the line about the tire having drowned. Thought that was that was good. That was good. I, I guess it's the weird, like flatteric. It's the weird juxtaposition of a tire being a psycho killer, yeah, and murdering people in showers. It's just kind of kooky and weird and a bit, a bit. I, I'm not sure it sustains for 80 minutes. It is a gloriously short movie, but still, I think this idea could have been boiled down to gelatin within about 25 or 30 minutes is short. Well, here's the other thing about it. The tire is great puppetry, just like Flat Eric is, isn't it? The personality and the way they make it do things. It's pure puppetry, right? Yeah. That's the art that they've employed to bring their tire to life. So you can see the heritage there from Flat Eric. I'm not sure what they're trying to say about anthropomorphization because I never really felt it to be... I never really felt its murderous intent embodied in the tyre. It's not properly justified by the story, of course not. But it couldn't but be. But then could it's it. no reason, yeah. I mean, that's no the reason, other exactly. Yeah. Kind of yeah. subtext here or, or, or supertext. It's, it's kind of nihilism or absurdism of the, the, the whole piece. Yeah, it's absurd. It's no reason. There's no reason for a tyre to suddenly take on the properties of a roaming serial killer, you know. So, But in aid of what? What's this all about? I don't know, really. So let's talk about the acting. I mean, here, I mean, we've got people acting about acting. And so they're supposed to be hammy, aren't they? And it's supposed <laughs> to be a little bit kind of hanging on their lines kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, it was it was it was perfunctory. I, I've got no real qualm with the acting per se. I'm going to score it a seven. Did you have anything to say about the acting? I like the guy playing the sheriff. I thought he was great. Yeah. And his- he was just a little bit off-key, a little bit edgy. The weird nerdy guy who prepared the turkey was also, you know... Steven Spinella. The girl in the golf. I think that's Ros- Roxanne Mesquida. They all played their part. She was great. Well. And I like the audience. I mean, and it was good, short- good tyre acting. Yeah, I mean, also, acting. great work by the rabbit. Let's not forget. <laughs> so, a seven for me. I might be overscoring. What did you score it? I'll give it a seven for acting, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, plot. We'll have to do plot. I'm sure I think if this were a human and this were a relatively, therefore, slightly more tense and scary psycho killer movie, I mean, is it always this plot? Yeah, it is always this plot, isn't it? Would it have held my attention more? Yeah, it probably wouldn't. I think that's what he's trying to say, isn't it? There is, it's banal. A psycho killer movie is banal. It, it's just a banal exercise in non-thought, isn't it? So, therefore, I'm not sure we can score plot because I think he was purposely trying to make it a dribblesome and slightly... Turkish plot anyway, wasn't he? But for those thought provo- provocations, I'm going to score it 6.5. A 6.58. Yeah. Me think. You liked it more, didn't you? 
I think there are some clever touches here, right? I there are say, clever I, touches. I like the bit on the chessboard. Yeah. I like the idea that the whole no reason speech that seems, in some ways, he's trying to excuse the whole stupid idea for the movie. Yeah. And maybe that's unforgivable. But at the same time, all of those no reason situations are bullshit because they all have a reason. They have a reason. With the possible exception think, of ETB. But I think he's trying to say that. It's, it's all within realms within realms here, isn't it? It's cod philosophy, isn't it? It's just. It's meant it's to be cod philosophy. Philosophy, yeah. So you could upscore it for that reason. I just didn't have the patience for it, unfortunately. I'll give it a seven. I'll give mm. it a seven. I don't know whether we do comedy or horror. I think we have to do both. Both? Um, okay. Well, we just score it. Did it work for comedy? Did it work for horror? And give it a score for both out of ten. It doesn't work as a horror because it's not scary. No. I mean, in some of the reviews it says, and it does manage to become at times tense. No, it doesn't. At no point <laughs> is a murderous tyre tense. You know, it's impossible to, to project onto that tyre the kind of fears you project onto a, a knowing, dangerous and out-of-control human. It's just not possible, is it? But I liked your French word droll. I had a wry smile on my face when I kind of worked out how it was tugging at me. Yeah. So definitely worked in the droll department to about a level of four out of five. It didn't work in terms of thrills or horror at two out of five. I'm going to score it six out of ten. Six was where I was as well, yes. Mm. Although I wouldn't have added it up the way you did. Still. Are you doing it out of five? That I'm scared. Okay, I see. I see. Yeah. So I think we have to talk about postmodernist kind of philosophical arch stance. Gooeyness. On, yeah. Was it gooey? It certainly was gooey. Did I want to play with the slime? No, I didn't. Did it go on for too long with its gooeyness? Yes, it did. Was it saying fundamentally things about how we can't say anything like postmodern films really do successfully do, i.e. they break down our confidence in our worldviews? No. It purported, as you said, a, sing- a simple, single narrative worldview that isn't entirely confirmed by the movie, depending on how clever you think the movie's made are his ideas about no reason really meant to be hammy or wrong or not i don't know it just didn't convince i don't think so for me this is a letdown unfortunately it's a 5.5 from me come on there is something clever going on here where postmodern or not maybe not but this whole message that this whole saltiness toward hollywood the thing that you picked up on the fact that the studio is feeding its audience a turkey that kills the audience which of course kills the studio but Hollywood has got to keep on making these turkeys as long as there is still someone watching. Because it can't make anything watching. else, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure that as a central thesis really sustains an 80-minute movie, does it? Maybe not, maybe not. <sighs> I mean, David Lynch, I think, could throw all kinds of stuff in there to make it, to really play around with different viewpoints on this. True. But, but if David Lynch had done it, it would have been three hours long and it would have made the lick of sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> and the rabbits would have been fucking scary too. <laughs> For all those reasons, no, I'm sticking with 5.5. It didn't work for me as a postmodern opus. What did you think about the postmodernity of it all? It's bubblegum rapper philosophy. But there is is some philosophy, so I'll give it a six. Okay. For an overall score. An overall score. Uh, 6.5. It's worth a watch. Uh, It is brief, and therefore it's not a waste of time. If this tickles your fancy, it will tickle your fancy. If you get slightly annoyed and irritated by this kind of just turn it off. That's what it off. that's what the film wants you to do, so it can stop making itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll give it. I'll give it a six. Oh right, okay. I thought you liked it more than I did, but in the end, I seemed to persuaded you. I, I mean, I liked it more than not. Right? It's slightly above average. Uh, yeah, it's over the hill. I mean, it's definitely it's worth it's worth an hour of your time. You'll only really dig this if you understand Flat Eric, right? If you have heritage with it, then yeah. it might have more meaning for you. Okay. Paul, we're obviously not going to the cinema this week. I'm sorry. But tell me, there's plenty of stuff to watch on streaming. Tell me. Oh. And who, who is choosing? Am I choosing? Are you suggesting am I choosing? Uh, fuck off, I just don't. He's I vibrating. Don't. He's going to make my head explode. No. I'm doing my spectral turn loading the, turn, screen. Turn the uh, camera uh, up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to oh, ask you to do the tune for The Saint. Oh, what a tune. Da 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 da
trumpets to come in. He doesn't come in. It's like, what do you call it? That effect? That, uh, the Mandela effect? At the end of the, the intro, I imagine this big flur of 70s trumpets coming in, a glorious blaze <laughs> of funkiness. And it doesn't happen. Oh, reality's changed. Yep, clearly. Yeah, it doesn't happen. But it is a smacker of a tune. It's, it's, a, it's a superb tune, it has to be said. Right, okay. So next week, Richard, we did have two things lined up, and I've gone off the them. I'm really sorry. Okay. The one I want is the one I remember. So I'm going to suggest we watch Safety Not Guaranteed. Safety Not Guaranteed. I'm going to have to call this out. Safety Not Safety Guaranteed, not guaranteed. with Aubrey Plaza, who is a person... Yeah. Rather than a place. Which yes. is a classic. Yes. Uh, it's not, I don't know whether it's classic. We're Up against Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You. Yeah. Okay. I've already chosen Safety Not Guaranteed. Okay. Safety Not Guaranteed. And is this viewable for our viewers on Amazon any kind Prime? Of streaming as service? I understand it. Brand new. Hop to Amazon Prime. Prime. Good. New on to Amazon Prime. Safety Not Guaranteed. That's what we're watching in episode 49 of Drive By Seven. So thank you for joining us. And until the next time, goodbye. See you on the next one. Bye.